We are moving along in the story, and last week uh, we talked about the, the Last Supper. And uh, Judas, who's the betrayer, who is, uh, who is highlighted for us, but the other disciples don't see it. And then uh, Peter is trying to find out who, and he never does find out during that meeting who it is, but at the end, when he makes his bold declaration, I'll fight with you, and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd die for you, Jesus. Jesus tells him he would deny him three times. And so we leave the Last Supper, and this morning we uh, move into the next episode that happens uh, in the Olive Grove as Jesus went there with his disciples to pray. And we're starting in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47. Even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They'd been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him a kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. But the others grabbed Jesus and then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? that describe what must happen now. Then Jesus said to the crowd, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day, but this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. And at that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. So as I mentioned, this episode follows on last week's, and Peter's made his, his bold declaration, I'll die with you, and Jesus has told him, you'll deny me three times before dawn. And so this leads into this time where Jesus is in the, the grove with the twelve, and it seems to them like it's going to be a peaceful time of prayer, and then all of a sudden, there's this group coming at him, and there's this big confrontation that happens. And so we're going to look at some of the details of this story as, as it unfolds this morning. First, there's this mob, this battalion. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, it says, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. And so that's in our passage this morning from Matthew's gospel. But if we look over to John's gospel, it gives us a little more detail into this crowd of men with swords and clubs. It says the leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. A contingent of Roman soldiers or, or a battalion of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. And now with blazing torches, it says there, and lanterns and weapons, they arrive in the olive grove. Um, so, so John's gospel actually goes on a little further in chapter 18 to, say, to mention a commanding officer that's with this battalion of Roman soldiers. So there's been a little bit of a back and forth in, in the gospels. And, and you might know if you've read it some, from some gospels that they move from, from being uh, 
on trial, like the Romans coming, and then they, they, Jesus goes to the, to the, and, and to the um, religious authorities. And so there's this, this interplay between these two groups of people that are out to get Jesus. And here, they're cooperating. There's Roman soldiers. There is uh, temple guards. And uh, in fact, in, later in, in chapter 18 of John, it says that there was a commanding officer with the contingent of soldiers. So a little bit of, of history here. There's a, a fortress called Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem. So it's kind of believed this is where that contingent, where that, that group of Roman soldiers would have come from. And, and if they have a... a, a commanding officer, the word that they use for commanding officer is the word that they use for uh, uh, an officer who is in charge of a thousand men, which would have been 760 infantrymen and 240 cavalry, 240 guys on horseback and, uh, and 760 other soldiers. Now that creates a problem for some scholars. They go, well, it doesn't sound like there was that many guys there and, and, and it doesn't we don't picture it that way. And, and the other Gospels don't, don't even really mention it in that, that way. They, they say a, a group, but they, they don't, don't use a word for like a big battalion like that. And, and, and so some have suggested that, that it wasn't the entire contingent, like it wasn't the whole thousand that went with the commanding officer, uh, but, but he would have been in charge of a thousand men. So he might have brought a group that was somewhat smaller than that. But you can be sure that if they're sending a commanding officer that's of a rank that, that guides a thousand men, that they're not sending him in there with four or five guards. And that's all he's got. They're, they're going there armed. They expect the possibility of conflict, right? So it would have been a sizable group of Roman soldiers alone just because there's a commanding officer with them. And so we don't know exactly how many, but a sizable force of Roman soldiers. Then you add some temple guards on top of that. You, you picture them with swords. The Romans had these big, thick swords that they were used to kind of cleave a man in half, basically. And that's why they talk about, you know, Roman soldiers falling on their sword. Like, you weren't going to survive if you fell on your sword. This is not a, a dinky little sword. And so there's, there's a gr group that's, that's big. They're well-armed. And, uh, and, and they're well-trained Roman soldiers and know their business. And uh, the temple guards are with them on top of that. And, and so that's the kind of force that's coming at Jesus to pick him up and arrest him. And so then we move uh, beyond the battalion to the, to the kiss. And, and then there's a kiss. And, and the traitor Judas had given them this prearranged signal. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus and he says, greetings, rabbi. And he gives them the kiss. And so that's how they're going to know who to pick up. But a kiss is kind of an intimate symbol between friends. Friends greeted each other with a kiss. So he walks up to Jesus and he uses this sign of, of close bonded friendship to sell him out to these men who are looking for him. And so the kiss comes as something that's maybe a sign of really deep betrayal. And you can kind of feel for Jesus knowing this is his friend. He says, go do what you got to do. And here comes Judas bouncing in like nothing's wrong and smiles at him and says, here, let me give you a kiss and, and greetings, rabbi. Like rabbi, teacher. 
And if we were there, we might be looking at, at Judas and saying, teacher, you haven't learned anything from Jesus. Like the way you're acting right now, you haven't picked up on any of the lessons that he's been trying to teach you about what is happening in the world and what's important and who he is and, and, and what kind of Messiah he is. Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of God, and Peter wants to follow him, but Judas doesn't get it at all. And calling him teacher, when he's turned on him and nothing that Jesus had taught him seems to have sunk in, seems like an even bigger sting. And so then the sign is given and, and, and they arrest Jesus. And, uh, and in our passage in Matthew, then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one man, one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Now he just says one of the, one of the people with Jesus. And there's uh, in Luke's gospel, it says the same thing. One of them slashed at, at this servant of the high priest. But John comes out and tells us, he tells us that the one is Peter. In fact, he says, Then Simon Peter drew out a sword, slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. So he gives both men a name, right? It's Peter that did it, and it's Malchus that lost an ear. And if you look closely at, at this encounter, you find that this conflict is between Peter and, and, the, and the high priest. We, we hear about him slashing off the ear, but you got to understand, Peter doesn't have a Roman soldier, sword. When, when it says sword, it's not the same kind of sword. In fact, the word, and, and there's been some study and some suggestion that it was like more like a dagger, like, like not a little knife, but a, like an 18-inch blade maybe. So somewhere between 18 inches and a little bigger, but nowhere near the kind of sword that they have. And we're told that there's only two of them in the entire group. So they got a, an, an armed battalion, right? Roman soldiers, well-trained, well-armed, huge swords. And, and they got the temple guards. And Peter says, we got two daggers or two smaller swords. And Peter said, I'd die for you. I think he's kind of backing up his word, isn't he? These guys are coming in a mob, and, and Peter says, well, I'm going to take them all on, right? He gets out there with his sword. He doesn't wait to see if any of the rest are with him. He doesn't see if anybody else is going to take that second sword and come in and charge him right behind him. He doesn't look to see if the other ones are, are putting up their fists. He jumps right into the fray, says, if you're coming for Jesus, you got to get past me. And he slashes this guy, Malchus, in, and tries to take his head off, probably, and, and he gets an ear. And so the disciples, outmanned, underskilled, ragtag fisherman, tax collector with two swords or, or two daggers between them, and Peter steps up and he proves, I'm willing to fight and I'm willing to die. If you want Pete Jesus, you can come through me. That's the kind of attitude he shows here. 
And that's the point where things get really strange in the story because you would think that something would happen there. Peter is obviously expecting either I'm going to die for Jesus or Jesus as the Messiah. Something powerful is going to happen and and, and no way he's going to let me go down. And I'm actually going to be able to do like David killed his, you know, Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. Maybe he thinks God's just going to give him the power to cut down this whole battalion and he's going to walk away going, I had faith faith in Jesus. I believed that he was the Messiah, and I backed him up. I put my money where my mouth was, and, and it'll either work out or it won't, but I'll, I'll show what I'm made of. I'll show where my loyalty is. I'll show that I'm not the betrayer. He's got one little sword, one little dagger, and he gets one guy's ear. And if you're looking at it through human eyes, you go, this guy's dead. Like this, these people are going to swarm him and he's going down in seconds. He's just attacked them violently. He's shown that he's not going to be peaceful about this. And this guy, he doesn't stand a chance. And on a, on a spiritual level, you'd say, well, God can protect him and, and, and maybe he'll give him the victory. And, and it's going to be that, that they're just all going to fade to the background and, and, and he's going to go through but you never expect what happens next unless you knew the story. And so Matthew doesn't tell us this part of the story, but Luke does. Luke says, one of them struck the high priest slave slashing off his right ear, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed it. Peter's going, we got to take these guys out before they can get Jesus. I'm going to do as much damage as I can. I'm going to go with my little sword, and I'm going to slash away. And the only thing he manages to damage is a guy's ear, and Jesus puts that back together. Jesus, they are coming to kill you. This is not the time for healing. It's got to be what's going through his mind. Healing is a time for after they do their damage to us, but now you're fixing the enemy. They're out to get us. They're out to get you. They're going to kill you. And so he's confused more than anything else. What's happening? If he knew the right way to go, he'd go there. If he knew how to fight evil, he'd do it. If he knew how to step out against the darkness, he's willing to risk everything to do it. He just doesn't know what to do. And Jesus is completely unexpected in this moment. And so Peter's trying to wrap his mind around it, but he's got this idea of what happens when the Messiah faces armed conflict with an enemy, and this is not what he expects to happen at all. And you can imagine, if it doesn't make sense to Peter to let Jesus get arrested, imagine if he understood that before the night is out, these same men would crucify Jesus. How confusing it would be that Jesus steps up and says, we're not going to fight. Here, let me fix your ear. And so... 
he's left with this quandary of, I want to do the right thing. I want to follow Jesus. I want to show my loyalty. I want to be Jesus' man. I want to show that I'm not going to betray him, but I'd stand up for him. I'd live for him. I've lived for him, and now I'll die for him. That's what he's trying to prove. And he throws him, his whole self into it. And now, now what? And so they all stand there stunned. And, and then Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, am I some dangerous revolutionary? He points out the strangeness of the time and the place that they come. They come in the darkness. And he says, they, he says to the crowd, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in Scripture. He says, I am following what was foreshadowed, what is told in Scripture would happen. And he says, why didn't you guys come in the light of day? I was in the temple every day. You could have came and found me so easily. And here you got to sneak up on me and, and get one of my friends to sell me out and kiss me so you know who to who to." arrest and and who you take into custody and who to attack and, and you come by the cover of darkness so the people in the temple don't see you like like it's kind of shady right and jesus calls him out for it and he says you could have got taken me anytime and, and you come at me like i'm a revolutionary i'm not picking a fight here i got a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector uh, unless you, you're a fish you're not really in much danger from them right They got two daggers, two small swords between them. And you feel like you need to come under darkness, fully armed to the teeth with this huge group of men and, and, and take me here. Like you understand how ridiculous this is. And so he points out that they're coming by darkness. And, and it's almost symbolic, right, of what's really going on. Because this is the forces of darkness coming at the one who's the true light and they're intent on snuffing him out and peter peter sees the darkness he sees where these guys stand he knows what they're about he knows that they are not on his side and he's ready to fight them he's ready to step up against the darkness but it doesn't seem rational what Jesus is doing to respond to the darkness. He thinks when you see the darkness, you fight it. And you fight it by all means necessary. And so Jesus completely catches them by surprise. And Jesus does the completely unexpected. And so it's easy for us to know what we know about that night and what was happening you know what they say, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? In, in the moment, if you can put yourself in Peter's shoes, you can understand why he responds the way he did and why he thinks the only thing to do in this case is to step up and, and to show force and to answer their violence with the same on the side of good when they come with violence on the side of evil. We've had 2,000 years to figure this out. But, but if you're Peter, you're standing there and you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to show loyalty to Jesus. You're trying to fight against darkness. 
but you don't understand because Jesus is not doing what he would expect a Messiah to do. And Jesus isn't countering the darkness the way that he would expect him to. And I wonder for us sometimes if we don't get ourselves in situations where we have a very clear idea of what God would and wouldn't do. What Jesus should do in this situation. I have been with people who said, well, I, I know that God brings healing and, and I'm, I'm healed but not revealed. You know, It hasn't shown up in my body yet, but I am going to be healed and I'm claiming it in faith. And, and I, you, know, you feel a caution and it doesn't always work out that way. God can and does bring healing, but not all the time. And I remember this lady that said that to me once, and, and it was less than a month before she wasn't with us anymore. And we stood at her graveside, and we all cried because she was a great lady in the church, and we all loved her. And she was sure she was going to be healed, and, and she wasn't well. She wasn't in this body. But I know I'm going to meet, I'm going to meet Barb at the gates of heaven. And her body will be fully functional and there will be no cancer. I know that she is whole. And she is healthy. And she is with Jesus. But it's not the way that she expected it to play out. And there are so many times when we are sure of what we think God would do. Now let me tell you one little lesson about the Jesus we serve. Sometimes he will surprise you. Sometimes he will not do what you expect him to do because he's God and we aren't. And he knows all things and we don't even come close. You get the, dis the, the distance in intelligence between us and him, the wisdom between us and him, the power to see things that are happening and what to anticipate what is best between him and us. And you know that sometimes we are going to get it wrong. It doesn't make any sense sometimes the way that he acts. And if we step back into the passage one more time, we hear Jesus uh, again and again through this passage demonstrate that the most important thing that is happening here, uh, the thing that he is doing is that he is displaying his power. And so when, when Judas steps forward and kisses him, he says to Judas, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. It's almost like Judas needs his permission to fully engage with what he's there to do. Jesus says, go ahead and do as if it's up to Jesus. And then when Peter steps forward and slashes the high priest's servant's ear, when he takes Malchus's ear off, he heals it. And then he says, don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he'd send them instantly. I could do that. I have the power to do that. 
But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? In fact, in, in uh, John's gospel, it doesn't even include the part about Judas. It tells us that when Jesus first stepped up to the men who were approaching him, the first thing he said to them, we know Judas came and kissed him and called him rabbi, and he responded to that, but, but first Jesus stepped forward and took control of the situation and got between uh, the, the approaching horde and, and his own friends, and he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. Like I am is the divine name for God. And when he said, I am he, they all fell back. And they're flat on the ground. And then they get up and they start coming towards him again. And he says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he again. But he, but he proves with his power there from the outset that, that there is something about him that he is deciding what happens here. That it was not out of his control. That he isn't helpless little Jesus in this story. Uh, about It's not poor Jesus who's powerless against the forces of evil. And, and poor Jesus, they come for him and, and, and they take him and they arrest him and they, they take him off. Uh, to do bad things to him. That's not what's happening here. And so all through the story, Jesus is, is giving these subtle and not so subtle reminders. This is not because they have decided to do this to me. This is because I am allowing it to happen to me because I am walking into what comes next willingly. is all the power to control events and to make happen what he wants to happen. And so he says to them in, in Matthew's gospel, I could ask my father for a thousand angels. Like these guys aren't any trouble for me if that's what I wanted to do. Peter, we aren't here to fight violence with violence. We aren't here to respond to darkness in like kind. We are here to shine the light. He doesn't need to fight the darkness. Peter needs to submit himself to the light to say, Jesus, what should we do? And you and I this morning, as we approach the living God of heaven, we need to set aside all of our preconceived notions and so often go to the Lord and say, God, what do you want me to do? Lead me. Lead me to the right scripture verses. Lead me to the right person who's going to speak wisdom to me. Lead me by your Holy Spirit speaking inside me and nudging me in the right direction and telling me when I should speak and when I should be quiet, when I should fight and when I should be submissive. When I live for you, I want to know every right decision to make and you're the only one I can get those answers from. Help me to recognize them when I see them. Speak to me by all the means that God speaks to human beings. Help me to see it and recognize it. And give me the courage to obey it, even when it seems so reckless. For Peter, it, and for most of us, if we were in that situation, letting them come and, and drag your friend away seems like a really foolish thing to do. You're never going to see him again. 
Jesus knows what's happening. And Jesus understands the entire universe. And he knows what it will take to pay for our salvation. And so he does what only he can do. And he knows what exactly is the best thing for the entire world. And I thank God that he knew what to do. And he was willing to do it. I mean, part of me hopes that I would have the courage of Peter, but I hope I would have the wisdom to turn to Jesus more and to ask him what he wanted us to do. And in every situation, we are faced with that choice to make up our own minds what we think is right based on what we know or to seek Jesus who still lives and still speaks and still contradicts our best ideas of what he wants sometimes. And it's not about what, what you want or you think. It's not about what I want or I think. It's about him. And so Peter steps up. And he tries as best he can. But it's Jesus that he needs to hear from. And it's Jesus he needs to follow. Just like every disciple that decides that he is truly their Messiah, their Lord, 